Hello everyone, uh, welcome to a new episode of The Driven Show. We are at Westlake Village, California, very close to LA, not very close, about 40 minutes from LA. And we have a very special guest today, uh, Roy Rubin, founding partner of R Squared Ventures and popularly known as former CEO and co-founder of uh, Magento. Roy, thank you so much for joining and great to have you at The Driven Show. Happy to be here. Thanks for, uh, for coming down to Westlake Village. Thank you. Roy, uh, you moved to the U.S. when you were nine years old from Israel. And then after spending about 10 years in the U.S., you moved back uh, to Israel to study. What's so special about Israel? And tell us about your early years growing up in Israel. Wow. So we go, <laughs> we go way back. You know, look, I think Israel at the time that I grew up, and I grew up there until the age of nine, was very wholesome almost very naive in many, many ways. We would uh, have, you know, um, a lot of freedom as, as, as children to walk around and, and discover things. And, you know, this is pre-cell phones and pre-technology. So, you know, we'd leave the house and come back a few hours later and nobody would worry about you. And it was just uh, a very safe and humble environment to grow up in. You know, the transition to the United States at the age of nine was was a shock because, you know, I came from a very middle-class family and there wasn't much going on. We'd play ball. That's pretty much what we did every single day. Just, just, you know, um, kick around a soccer ball. That was our, you know, that was our activity. And you land in the United States. And I remember the first week my parents took me to Disneyland and that was like, wow, that was a big thing. Or even, I mean, for me, the most vivid memory is actually um, on my birthday, which was about a month after we landed, my parents took me to a Toys R Us store. And I thought I was just in heaven. I could not believe what I saw because the you know, toy stores back home were tiny. There were little tiny shops. And, and here's this you know, um, incredible, um, huge store with just every single thing you could imagine in every aisle. And uh, for me, just that was, I think, kind of the earliest memories of me moving to the United States, how different and, uh, and plenty everything is you know, versus back home. What's so special about Israel? I mean, I think about 60% of your investments are in Israeli companies. Tell us about the startup ecosystem there and why is that? Is there any secret sauce there? 60% of your investments are in Israeli companies? Look, I think there's a very special DNA, you know, in Israel. Um, if you think about sort of the history of the country, um, it's, you know, it's a situation where it is in the Middle East, where, you know, the country is largely surrounded by, by enemies. Um, some, you know, obviously are no longer, but you know, it's a very, um, it, it creates a persona, um, one that is um, not afraid of risk taking, um, one that requires a lot of the younger kids in Israel to pick up STEM skills at a very early age because the country really invests a lot in, you know, ensuring that it is best in class and world leading in a lot of the areas of technology as it sees the value there as critical for its survival. Um, so between risk-taking, entrepreneurship, the military, which is a requirement for every um, high school um, graduate in, uh, in, you know, in Israel to go through, that creates, uh, you know, I think a lot of interesting dynamics around leadership and around soft skills um, and also technical skills, you know, coming in from the military as well. Um, but when you kind of blend everything together and a really strong access to capital, a plethora of capital being available to fund ideas, you know, as well. 
um, it just creates an ecosystem and a DNA that is very unique. And, and for us, being Israelis, my partner and I um, in the fund, Roy Ares, who has been um, you know, a great partner uh, um, and, and, and you know, a close friend, for us, we obviously share the DNA and, and feel very comfortable in, in that environment and love spending time with the teams and, and really adding value and, you know, and supporting them. It's not all we do. We, we do fund, of course, companies here in the United States, but we do see a lot of great talent coming in from Israel. Um, and this, um, you know, for us, is very exciting to, you know, to go back and support and spend time with the teams that are working on some very creative solutions. Yeah, it's very competitive and the competitive nature gets out the best in people. And, uh, it's yeah. extremely competitive. <laughs> it is competitive. Um, and for the right reasons, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of startups that form every year and only, you know, a select few are really able to raise capital. So mm -hmm. it sort of breeds the best of the best. Um, and and it's been, it's been, you know, been a blast to just, you know, continue developing our relationships with the ecosystem and, you know, whether it's a, it's the venture capital relationships, but also the entrepreneurial relationships and continue to back teams that are just very creative and hungry. We, we love that. That's awesome. And um, I've read a lot about your variant days when you started Magento, how you started as a services firm and transitioned into building products. And you used the Google AdWords to your advantage in the early days. And you created uh, this wonderful open source platform called Magento. Talk us through your early days of building Magento. I think that's something a lot of people would like to know. Yeah. So, you know, I started, so I came back to the United States when I was 23. And I did not have any money. Um, and I needed to be a little bit creative in how I paid rent, right? So that's that's the story of how I started the services company, which really began as a freelance business. And I would go to college here in the United States, uh, in, in LA, uh, in the morning, and then just do freelance work that I picked up. Self-taught, I bought these big, thick books, you know, uh, Barnes & Noble. It used to be Borders, but, you know, Barnes & Noble uh, still has a few branches open, but bookstore, basically a bookstore. Um, and I would learn HTML and JavaScript and CSS and all this kind of stuff. And then back in, I started programming uh, in Perl. You know, it's a sort of pre-PHP or PHP was just around the corner. But anyway, I picked up some skills and I started to do some services work. And eventually I found my way relatively early into the e-commerce world. Um, and that was, uh, was, I think, the kind of an inflection point because it really allowed me to focus. Whereas before, I'd kind of do everything, you know, content management and just every, you know, forms and odds and ends. Um, here for the first time when I discovered e-commerce, I was able to really double down um, and focus on a specific discipline. And I knew nothing about it, but I started to pick up e-commerce work with some merchants that gave me a shot. Um, and that's how I first sort of, on the services side, began to you know, began to work with merchants. And you're right, um, you know, Google had just released AdWords and I, I started to pick up business through AdWords and, and it just like it blew up, right? And I um, was able to really scale that services business while still at, at college. I went to UCLA um, and that began to scale and we had 20, 30 full-time people already um, just servicing um, open source e-commerce. Um, but for me, that wasn't enough because I had always this interest in building product. And if you kind of rewind back to that time, this was the big Web 2.0 growth era. So I'm dating myself, but you know, um, you know, this is the days where Flickr came out and Delicious and you had 37 signals writing these great posts and they were working on some really interesting products. 
And I was sitting on the sidelines, like consuming all of this and saying, well, wait a minute, this is really fun and interesting. Here I am servicing clients, which is, which is fine. But man, I think building product on the other side is where the fun really you know, is. So I always had this interest, um, especially sort of seeing these great products come to market. I had a great team, but I still struggled to, you know, believe it or not, it's clear that we built Magento, but it wasn't clear back then that we were going to go build an e-commerce platform. So, you know, we actually sat down, I remember this vividly, we sat down and like started to strategize and ideate around what do we want to build? And only later we decided to go build an e-commerce platform, but we had some ideas and, you know, nothing really was interesting enough or stuck or I would sleep on it and wake up the next morning and say, nah, that's not interesting. <laughs> so, but ultimately we said, look, why don't we go build what we know how to build, which is, you know, e-commerce. Um, we have a skill set. We have a, um, you know, uh, a DNA. We have a team that knows how to do this. So it became clear over time that that's indeed where we wanted to go. And that's just how the story of Magento came, you know, came to life really out of the services company. That's awesome. And uh, one thing, uh, when you talk about Magento, you always talk about its community. And uh, you guys build a very, very powerful and strong community across the world. Tell us about the community building activities. What advice would you have for some other companies out there or product companies out there who are also looking to build communities like how Magento built it? It's a, it's a very good question because I point back to the early days and I try to think about what we did right and what we did wrong. Um, but the community, I, I have to say, look, I want to take credit for it, Karthik, <laughs> I really do, but it came on its own. And I think that's the fair answer to this. But, but there are some lessons learned here, right? And I think for me, the biggest lesson learned is if you create a great product and you release it in the market and there's strong demand for the product, both on the merchant side in our case and the developer side, uh, but you have constituencies that are really eager for this product. And ultimately, there are great revenue opportunities for all sides of the marketplace to, um, to double down on. Then your job as a software vendor is honestly just to get out of the way <laughs> and let the community develop on its own. So, you know, we started with a few events. By the way, the first initial events were not even our events. I got invited to events. Right, there was a gentleman, hopefully he's listening to this, uh, Rico out of Germany, um, who um, invited us to you know, an event. I think it was outside of Frankfurt. You know, this was like, oh my God, almost 20 years ago. This is insane, like 20 years ago almost. But you know, I got called, like, right, I think the, the beta was still out and, and Rico said, hey, we're gonna get some people together in Germany to talk about this. Do you guys wanna come? And I was like, what? <laughs> like, I didn't even know people downloaded this stuff from like in Germany. So, you know, we came and I think there's a photo floating out there. I remember this. Um, but that was the first time that I started to really understand that, hey, there's a lot of interest and people want to collaborate and sit around the table and share experiences. And they're eager for this FaceTime uh, to talk about the product. So from that point on, you know, every time there was an invitation and there was one, you know, I think in... Um, Netherlands that came right after, um, and some other things that started to develop organically, um, we just came when we were invited and we started to collaborate. And, and I think that got us, you know, got, got us kind of understanding that there's something bigger there. You know, eventually we'd put on 
conferences and sort of take a more active role, but it was the organic uh, bottoms up community building largely by individuals that I think really understood the vision and where we want to take the product that kind of spearheaded a lot of what Magento's community has become over the years. Yeah, my next question was on events and you talked about events as well and the Magento events are very popular across the world. Even as we are speaking, long after you have left Magento, there's one event happening in Indonesia, one event happening in Singapore and that's amazing. Is there anything you did or the company did to push that further? Look, I think, I think we, we embraced it once yeah. we saw the interest in the community. But as you see now, these events are happening without any corporate guidance, without any corporate help. Um, I think this is organic, right? I think this is the real story of Magento. A lot of organic, interesting growth, I think spearheaded by a great product and a very thirsty ecosystem um, that saw the revenue opportunity and the collaboration opportunities here. And if there's anything that I think is a takeaway, it's build a great product and get out of the way because <laughs> the community largely develops on its own. You know, even the Magento events, I, I you know, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy, right? But I, I never wanted these events to be, to be uh, on us, meaning I didn't want to be the focus <laughs> and I didn't want my team to be the focus. I wanted the community to be the focus. So oftentimes, I don't know if you know this, but oftentimes I would, you know, at the Magento Imagine events, I would give a keynote and I would run up to my room because I didn't want this to be about me, right? I felt the value in the ecosystem was about the collaboration of the individuals. Um, so I, you know, I didn't want the attention. I didn't want to be walking the halls and, and grabbing people and, and, you know, and the interest out of the room. I wanted the community to spend time on itself. I thought that would accelerate what we do um, and the less that I think our team took the forefront of it was a smarter strategy and it, and it, and it proved itself, I think, right in many ways. Build a great product, get out of the way. And um, I've also tried to... It's very to contrarian, <laughs> I have to say, because I think a lot of people think like we actually did a lot of this. I, and I, I, I would love to take credit, but man, I, I got to tell you, this, like the community is incredible because they largely led us to where, um, you know, to where... Um, you know, the, you know, the product in the community is today. That's also, I mean, it's great. And it's also taking the focus away from you. I think that's also a great strategy. I was always looking for you at the Magento events at Imagine. And now I understand you why. Couldn't find me. Me. <laughs> you couldn't find me. Look, I mean, I, I would take meetings, but they would be, you know, much more, uh, you know, quiet and sort right. of on the side. You know, I did walk the halls, you know, every once in a while just to show my face. But, you know, but ultimately, look, right. you know, there's so much, you know, people come to these events to, to really interact with the you know with 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 their colleagues and and I just felt like we were just distracting them so um, yeah so I try to get out of the way as much as I could. Awesome. Uh, sticking on to Magento, uh, were you involved in building the Magento Go product? Uh, it was a really nice product and you know competed with Shopify. And at one point, you guys said, hey, you know we're not going to do that anymore. Looking back, do you think that was a mistake? So the it's a very very good question. Um, so what happened was, if, so if, if you sort of think back, Magento was released in an era where on-premise was the deployment typically of e-commerce websites, right? This is pre-cloud. So what we delivered ultimately back then was a zip file, right? That was it. And the infrastructure, the servers, 
the onboarding was really done by the merchant, oftentimes with a partner um, and a hosting provider. Now, the world changed as we were building out the next generation of Magento. As we were coming to market, the world really changed. So I went from on-premise to cloud. That transformation was disrupting everything in the industry, not just in the commerce industry, but across the board, um, we saw the models of distribution begin to change. And we understood that we would need to adapt uh, and change as an organization if the product will continue to be relevant in years to come. So around 2009, I got a team together, 2009, 10, somewhere there, I got a team together and I said, look guys, we're going to have to change as a business and we're gonna have to disrupt ourselves. And the way to do that is to go build a cloud platform, uh, which became Magento Go, that would be the future of the business. We would be a cloud company. Now, I didn't wanna walk away from the open source world because I felt like that is still very much in our DNA, but I felt like the story of open source was going to be very different once the cloud begins to take shape. So relatively early, we began on this journey. I had a team working on it. And my most important component was that we developed one, it's gotta be a platform as a service, meaning that this ecosystem that we've developed in the on-premise world, folks like you, right, back then, uh, you know, and others that built their business and their livelihood in extending the platform, integrating with the platform, et cetera, still needed to see Magento as a solution that they could have confidence in and create revenue opportunities from. So we wanted to build a platform as a service. We wanted the extensibility component of Magento to be very much um, still around in the cloud. And we wanted to provide you know, the same dynamics in the cloud as we did in the, in the on-premise world. So we started, you know, we started building it. And I remember the first iteration, um, I had the team and we're just about to release it. And I had the team, I sat down the team and I said, look, let's go through it all. And what I did was I pulled up the Magento Connect, our app store marketplace. You know, this is 2009-10. This is early, guys. This is like, this is like pre all this Shopify app store, you know, uh, uh, world that exists now. Um, 14 years ago, 13 years ago, crazy. Um, so I pulled up Magento Connect, which was our app store for the on-premise. And again, my wish for this team that was building out the cloud offering was parity, right? So you could build any extension in the on-premise world, and you could move that into the cloud. It was, it was a very, very big vision, but we knew exactly what we wanted to build. And we started to go through the top 20 extensions, and the team said, look, I can do, we can do five out of 20. And I said, that's not gonna work. It's got to be 20 out of 20. If the market will believe and will see that we can develop technology that has parity between cloud and on-premise, that's the holy grail. Like, that is how we bring everybody to the cloud. But if we start to have different versions and this works and this doesn't work, I think we create confusion and we lose the opportunity to really migrate the ecosystem along with our technology uh, um, platform. So we killed the project and we started from scratch. And later um, we released Magento Go, which we felt was ready. We, be, we released a version of it that would work for the smallest of merchants. And that was by design because we did not want to, um, to risk, this is so new and so fresh that we did not want to risk going out and, and bringing on board bigger merchants. We said, look, let's just start with the smallest of merchants, really build this 
make sure the product works, continue to iterate and refine, um, and then just take it from there. And that was what was you know, ultimately uh, released. And this happened you know, at a timeline right before eBay acquired Magento. And when eBay acquired Magento, there was a fight for resources and a prioritization difference between what we wanted to go do and what I think the team at eBay wanted to do. And, and at that point, we kind of lost track of really building out what I and the team had envisioned. And sadly, it just did not get the attention, love, and resourcing it needed to go and I think deliver its potential, which was going to be you know, a phenomenal cloud product. So that's the story of Magento Go. You know, ultimately, you know, uh, we decided to kill it. We decided to kill it when I was still there because we didn't see a future for it. We just, we, we, you know, we, we knew it, it would take significant investment. We did not have the support um, of eBay at the time, sadly. Um, and we decided to, um, to just lovingly um, move away from it, you know, knowing that there's, there's going to be a gap here in the market. So that's how it ended. That's how it began. And that's how it ended. <laughs> Always want to know the Magento Go story. Yeah. And it's great to hear it from you. But, but let me add one more thing, because the transition from, from on-premise to cloud beyond technology mm -hmm. was going to be in the business. Because remember, we delivered a zip file in the on-premise world. Now we deliver a 24-7 service. So we knew we had to transition the entire organization. This was a, like a groundbreaking move for us because we now have to provide a full service versus just a zip file, ultimately. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, and I'm simplifying it on purpose because, because it was, you know, I, you know, I knew that support needed to be, you know, uh, you know a different you know, grade of support and, and, and infrastructure and DevOps and all the stuff that we never had in place. So we started to hire for those positions and build that infrastructure. It was, you know, it was, it was, it was a big um, transition. We never fully saw it through, and that's that's a miss. When I look back, I think that if I would have had another one or two years, we probably could have had um, a very competitive cloud uh, product in the market. Cool. Talking about Magento, how did you scale the business? You know, both in terms of technology and also business development. Do you have any tips there for businesses out there looking to do the same thing? Yeah. You know, look, I think with with everything, I had wanted to hire strong leaders in the organization that would be better than me, right? So I had a great partner and CTO, um, Yoav, um, who really took that off my plate. Um, so he, he, you know, he was able to hire great, you know, architects and, and engineers and really scale that organization. Um, and on the business side, you know, I really tried to bring people that were just smart, right? Came with experience, were smarter than me and, you know, experienced than me. I didn't, I, I never built a sales organization. Uh, I never built a go-to-market team. I had some good intuition about it, but I was looking for people that could come in and really add value from day one and, and push me, you know? Um, and ultimately, I, you know, give them a long leash and tell them to go run and, you, you know, give them the support they need to do so. Um, but again, uh, get out of the way, right? <laughs> uh, because if you hire great talent that, uh, um, that is, you know, accelerating the business, I think as a, as a leader, your job is to just, you know, continue to embrace and empower those types of leaders that can help create uh, very strong opportunities. So um, I mostly hired, you know, I was fortunate to hire great people and just get out of the way. Yeah, hire great people, get out of the way. Yeah. Cool. Oh, that's great. So, I mean, as you know, DCCAP does a lot of work on the distribution side of things, B2B and all that. And we still think that this B2B space needs to be disrupted and there's not a great product out there serving the B2B customer. 
Why do you think that is, and what's the challenge there? So I've been pushing you on this, <laughs> right? We've been talking for years about about an opportunity here. Um, look, I think I think it's it's complicated, right? There's there's so many use cases, so much you know um, workflows. Um, it, it's a, it's a very different beast than your typical B two C implementation. Um, that's the challenge. That's the opportunity. But you know, look, I think that there will be a company one day that will come to market with a product that is flexible enough, that is adaptable enough, um, that really answers, um, I think, what the opportunity is, which is which is a massive one. Um, I'm excited to I don't know continue <laughs> to see what you do because uh, I think you're you're definitely on the right path. Uh, but there's others out there tackling this as well. Um, and, you know, uh, my good friend. Yoav Kutner uh, with Oro uh, Commerce, you know, and others as well. Look, there's a massive opportunity here, and and I agree, this is a, an untapped market in many ways still. Yeah, you know, we're excited with uh, what we're doing as well. I'll keep you posted on yeah. that. And uh, Roy, what do you think are the new trends in e-commerce, and how do you think businesses can prepare for it? Do you see any big change coming right now uh, in e-commerce? I don't see any big change. I think, look, AI is still up in the air. I mean, it feels like there's a transformational change here. You know, the question is to what extent. So I'm intrigued to see where that goes. You know, spending a lot of time talking to entrepreneurs, you know, and companies and sort of thinking about um, providing solutions uh, in that space. So it'd be interesting to see where that lands. Um, but outside of that, I I don't know. I think I think I'm still questioning. You know, I get to sit today in a place where a lot of smart young teams are looking to innovate. And, and oftentimes I get phone calls and they try to pitch me on this. So I get a lens about, you know, where, where things are going. Um, and, and there's a lot of exciting things, you know, unclear which ones are going to break through and win. But I've been fortunate to, to just get a, get a view um, and, you know, and see what happens. But, you know, to, to sum that up, I think you know, like AI feels like there's something here. To what extent and to what degree, I don't know yet. Too early to tell. There's also a lot of people that are just doing stuff that is really not defensible or there's no real IP. So I'm trying to figure out, you know, what, what's, what's there. And I'm hoping to find the right teams and, and you know, support them in, in some way, shape or form, whether it's through our investment or just advice. Uh, that's good too, right? But yeah. Talking about your investments at R Squared Ventures, you invest in a wide variety of industries, right? From ag tech to fintech, or even the place we are sitting right now, we were booking the space using one of the companies you invested in, Flexspace. So it's really interesting. When you invest in different industries, how do you stay connected or how do you develop deep technical expertise on these industries? So, yeah, you know, we, we, we have invested, you know, in, in multiple industries, um, both personally and through the fund. But I would say the fund is more focused on four key areas, uh, which for us are fintech and commerce, which is really in our DNA, you know, marketplaces, which we, you know, we love, we understand. We also understand how difficult marketplaces are, <laughs> most importantly and B2B SaaS, right? So those are areas that we feel that, that, that we intimately understand the dynamics um, and, 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 you know, and, the, and the opportunities. When opportunities come to us on the periphery, and they, and they do come to us, you know, we, we oftentimes you know, look at the, at the depth of the entrepreneurial team, knowing that we just don't know like, intimately the details. Like we, you know, we've done ag tech, we've done health tech, we've done insure tech. You know, this isn't necessarily our DNA. Um, but look, we, we look for strong DNA in the entrepreneurial team. We look for business models that we can understand, right? If something is just too foreign to us, we usually just say, look, we don't really understand this and 
And it's hard for us to get conviction if we don't understand the basics of how the business works. Um, but there's a lot of similarity in a lot of businesses, you know, building product, taking a product to market, who's buying this product, what are the channels of distribution, how is pricing figured out, how do you create an ecosystem around it, right? There's some fundamental things about, um, um, you know, about businesses and a lot of the businesses that we've supported on the periphery, I think we really understood the fundamentals well, while we did not understand the technicalities quite as well. And, um, you know, we, we decided to invest. But those are rare, I have to say. I think as we get a bit older and more experienced, <laughs> we, we tend to invest in areas that we just intimately understand um, and, and really double down on that and, and probably do less of the more creative outside-the-box things because we feel there's better investors out there um, than us in, in some of these areas. How do you find the founding teams, right? So for instance, uh, can you talk us through an investment making process or a decision, a difficult decision you had to make? Hey, you know, okay, you know, let me take a bet on this company, even though I don't have all the data. Can you talk us through an example? Yeah, so the founding teams, you know, often come to us. They either come to us directly because they've heard of us, because, uh, you know, one of our portfolio companies, founders, um, suggested that that they talk to us, right? So, you know, there's we sort of like like Magento's ecosystem, there's an ecosystem out there that knows who we are and and you know refers uh, um, people to us and you know we refer people to you know our partners and and collaborators in the space and you know colleagues as well. Uh, but everybody, you know, it's it's very friendly I have to say. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody kind of talks and 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 you know, you, you know, it's not as competitive as you think, I guess in some ways because we're all trying to collaborate and really you know, help each other out, um, sourcing the right teams and, you know, and doubling down on, you know, on opportunities. And oftentimes when we invest, we invest with other colleagues. So, you know, you're always trying to develop community around it. What was the second part of your question? The second part of the question was, can you provide an example of a difficult assessment? Hey, I looked at different companies and I decided, okay, let me just go invest. Any examples of that? Yeah, you know, so sometimes when we look at an investment, um, I mean, it's interesting because we can fall in love with the technology but we can have some doubts about the market or we can love this market and, and maybe not, not have as much conviction about the technology or the team. So, you know, you're trying to really sort of align all these things, a great team, your conviction about the team building, great product, your conviction about the team being able to take the product to market. Uh, and then is the market big enough? Is it interesting enough? Is it, is it, you know, is, is there enough business there to really reach venture size returns? Because that's the thing as well, right? Sometimes there's a niche market, um, and, and, and you just don't really understand how big a company can get. And when you're investing, you know, as a venture fund, you, you just, you know, you need a certain return profile because you've made promises to your investors that you'll return the money. Um, and, you know, and you want to do that. You want to do as best of, as best of a job you can. So, you know, all of this has to line up. So, you know, we've, look, you know, we, we look at hundreds and hundreds of investments um, a year, opportunities a year. And we make a handful. I think last year in 2022, we probably made maybe five or seven investments in total. We saw hundreds. Um, this year so far, we've made maybe a tad more. Mm -hmm. So, but in 2021, we made 20, I think. So it just depends. Um, and, you know, over time, you sort of understand what works, where the friction is. You know, we love to invest in businesses where there's tailwind, where they don't have to go and force a product down you know, into a market, it's harder, right? It, just, it, it takes longer. 
So, you know, where, where there's a lot of demand for solutions, a lot of thirst for innovation, where the sales cycles can be a bit shorter, where the ACV, the amount of, the amount of money customers are willing to pay is, is higher. Um, so there's a lot of dynamics that we sort of look for and, and start to map out. And we could be very analytical about it. But ultimately, a lot of times we invest very early and it, it, we invest based on gut. <laughs> so we throw all that away and we say, look, there's a very strong team in a very interesting space with a lot of creativity and they'll figure it out. And it's early enough and who knows what's going to happen. Right? And when you look at the biggest companies in the market today, from Facebook to Airbnb to Stripe uh, and, and many others, a lot of times it wasn't clear that these guys can actually win markets, right? Like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg started his thing in college, right? <laughs> just, to, just to Harvard, right? Just as college buddies. And then it became, you know, much, much bigger. So there's a lot of rationale, but what I want to say is like a lot of times you got to throw the rationale out the door and just say, look, there's something magical here about these people and we're going to just support them. And we do that often. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So you're an investor, a board member, do a lot of different things. What does a typical day look like? For Roy Rubin. <laughs> so typical day, you know, I wake up. Um, what time do you get up? It's funny. I'm not one of those guys that wakes up early and just like I said, his entire day. I, look, I wake up. I wake up, I don't know, 7, 7. Okay. 7.30 even. I mean, it depends because I have, to, I have the kids. Yeah. And I'm very involved in my kids' life. So I make them breakfast and um, I often take them to school with my wife, um, who's been a great partner. Um, so sometimes I take them to school, sometimes she takes them to school and then I usually work out for a little bit. So my first call will be, you know, 8.30, 9am and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll try to, to probably take, you know, five to seven calls a day, roughly there. That's kind of the average. Maybe some days will be more, but it's harder to do more. I, I don't have like, I get a little tired if uh, there's more, um, but you know, five to seven calls a day. And I would say it's a mix of new company pitches. So that's one, one thing. The second thing is it's working with our existing portfolio companies. That's another bucket. The third bucket is talking to our venture capital colleague partners, whether it's new folks out there that we're meeting or it's existing relationships that we maintain. And then it's my partner and I kind of syncing up every day or two, just, hey, here's what we've got going on and what we need to look at together, what we need to do separately. You know, we, we divide and conquer quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's still a lot that we try to collaborate on just to be timely and get back to people very quickly. But that's kind of what it is. So it's, you know, talking to basically customers, our portfolio partners, um, and, you know, and colleagues, right? So it's, it's very much similar to what the way businesses often operate. Um, but there's a lot of talking, um, and I try not to travel all that much, although we do travel to Israel to meet with our portfolio companies face-to-face. -face. We try to get there every quarter. For about a week yeah that's a typical day yeah and i also want to say that you also help a lot of entrepreneurs looking for advice you know i mean you do that, you know, so yeah. appreciate that a lot yeah 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 so I, I you know i try to meet with teams and and you know and spend time um giving back and you know and trying to help um, i learned from this as well like our conversations i learn a ton every time right i try to add value and and <laughs> and, and help but you know, I always learn and, and I'm happy to spend time, you know, with, with, with you know, smart folks that just want to wanna have some good conversations. Cool. Talk us through some of your failures or learnings and uh, what is that you've learned from your failures? How has that helped your entrepreneurial journey? 
Failures, you know, and learnings. Look, I think that when we built out Magento, you know, it seems like it was just like all roses, right, from, from day one. <laughs> but it, let me tell you something. It was like it's like this, right? You know, every day you wake up, you 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 know, you think, um, you know, you think you've got everything going on, and and it's and it's all great. But you know, by midday, like the world's caving in on you, and it's not looking as great. And by the end of the day, you want to jump off a bridge. Um, so it's like every day was just a ton of you know, tons of up ups and downs. We've made some great decisions hiring. We've made some very bad decisions hiring, right? We've made some great decisions in, in sort of building product and we've made some poor decisions in specific areas where we invested and nobody really cared about what you know we were building um, or it was just a waste of our time. So I think the life of an entrepreneur and the journey is filled with ups and downs and you know, there's been failures. Like I can think of hiring failures that we did that I thought were just that were going to kill the business. Like, like honestly, right? Because I was so stressed out, and I just I had to make a decision, and and it just even stressing me out more instead of really helping out and 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 sort of um, accelerating the business. So yeah, it's just it's a uh, it's I you know my my saying is I lost all my hair running <laughs> because it seems like it was all just like blowing up, but. But there's a lot of detail there and you know there's days where it was dark it was really dark but you know i'm glad i persisted because man some some days were tough cool tell us about your experience working with mark levo um, so at uh, ebay and he took over the ceo of magento after you tell us your experience of working with mark yeah mark was great mark mark um you know led the acquisition by paypal uh, at the time ebay and paypal were together so mark was um I believe head of corp dev uh, at, uh, at PayPal at the time, and he led the acquisition. Um, Mark's an entrepreneur at heart. He was part of the Bill Me Later team, which was a, a, a um, you know a business that PayPal acquired, and that's how Mark um, came into PayPal. And you know he led the acquisition. He wasn't involved at the beginning when we joined eBay, um, so he he was, I think, more uh, focused on other areas of PayPal. We began to collaborate back again when Magento merged with GSI at the time into eBay Enterprise. And I think Mark got more involved throughout that process. Uh, but then I had left, this was 2014. And, and you know, ultimately, uh, you know, 18, 24 months later, the company was spun out and Mark, Mark led, you know, uh, Magento coming out of that spin out. Um, and we collaborated back again when he called me and asked me to come back on the board. And, you know, it was great to spend time together on the board and, and you know, work with the team, work with Mark to continue, you know, building the strategy out for the product. Yeah, well, he's great. And one thing I really love about what he did is he continued to invest on the community. Yeah. And that really helped Magento and uh, ended up in... A yeah, Mark's always got it. Yeah, I mean, Mark, you know, always understood the value of the community, always understood, mm -hmm. you know, I think the brand that Magento represented. Um, he was a great advocate for what we were doing. I, you know, I always felt like there was a very supporting you know, figure and leader, you know, in Mark that really understood, um, you know, where we, you know, what Magento stood for. And that's, that's, you know, something to be appreciated for because it's not all that clear that, um, you know, you get somebody from the outside um, believing so much in, in the mission. And, and he was definitely that. Awesome. And after you sold Magento, you took an 18 month uh, break and you took your family and you toured the entire world. Tell us about that experience. How was that? Yeah. So I sold and then I spent almost three years, three um, years? Okay. Uh, at, uh, you know, at eBay. You know, look, this was, you know, about 12 years after I, well, 12 years, yeah, roughly 12 years after I began my journey. So, you know, I was sort of going full steam ahead for a very long time. And, you know, the eBay period was a tough period for me. 
um, emotionally and you know it was it just took a toll out of me because I had to really fight for things and it, it wasn't all smooth I have to say <laughs> um, and you know it some point I just said you know what it's enough like I have to just get my life back in order I have to get my sanity back in order you know I was going full steam ahead I had two young children at home I was rarely home because I was traveling and just trying to keep the lights on and making sure everything was was still ticking and um, you know and I and you know I had a team that I cared for of course as well so I just said you know look I I need to get out um, and I need to go do something else um, and for me that meant to spend time with the family and and sort of get my life back in order and I asked myself hey you know what's important you know for you in life um, and for me it was spending time with my wife um, and spending time with my children and that's what we did I left after the Imagine conference in 2014 this was May the kids were still in school we took them out and two weeks later we got on a plane and we came back home 14 months later so <laughs> You know, it was, uh, you know, life changing for, for us as a family. Um, I had no agenda. I had no calls. I had, I had nothing, which was what I wanted. I wanted nothing. I wanted quiet and peace and, and to just spend every minute of my day with the kids. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, we, we discovered new places together and we, we you know, we uh, bonded. And, you know, in, in hindsight, it was the best decision we ever made. And I highly encourage people <laughs> to do that. Take the, I don't know, 14 months, but take some time away from the day to day if you can to you know to do this with the family because it's it's a, it's a real bonding and uniting opportunity that is rare and and I feel fortunate to have had this time in life to do that my son now is about to be 17 in fact he just got his driver's license he's gone i will probably not <laughs> see him again <laughs> so um, you know looking back um, i had him hostage for 14 months uh, these days he's just an, an adult already um, and and I feel like the time has, you know, obviously changed dramatically now uh, and then. But we always have this sh shared experience to look back at, uh, and it's been, uh, you know, wonderful. That's awesome. Do you plan the trip? I mean, did you plan the trip? Like, hey, what am I going to do the second month, or you know, is it just go to one place and then decide where you're going to go next? How's we it? had nothing planned. <laughs> we had nothing planned. We had the first, uh, like, uh, this is pre Airbnb, I think. But I had yeah. the first like rental um, sure. for the first week in Costa Rica. We started in Costa Rica. And we said, you know, we'll figure it out. So we, we're not big planners. We love being adventurous and kind of learning as we go. So we literally have had nothing planned. In fact, we were closer to your part of the world. I remember this, I'll tell you this quick story. We were in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka, we got, yeah. <laughs> Eventually we got to Sri Lanka somehow. And we spent about a month in Sri Lanka. And, you know, we said at some point, we're kind of done. Like we yeah. want to go somewhere else. And we thought about going to India, to Rajasthan, but um, we just felt like we needed to get the kids back to like more Western uh, sure. environment. Um, so this was like, a, I think it was like a Tuesday afternoon and I literally bought the flight tickets for four hours later. <laughs> and I didn't know where I was going, but what I did was I pulled a weather map in Europe and I found the warmest place at the end of March in Europe. And I said, we're gonna land right there. It was the south of Spain. So literally from saying we, we, we need to move on to being in the south of Spain was like 12 hours. So that's the level of, I think, flexibility we wanted in life to just not even know what tomorrow will bring. Um, it was very exciting because like, you know, you don't know where, where you're going to be tomorrow. And, yeah. and that's, you know, not many of us experience this in life. I think we're all very planned and disciplined around that kind of stuff. It was the first time and 
and kind of last time I did where you just don't know where you're going to wake up in the morning. And that creates, I think, a lot of excitement um, in life. I'm tempted to do this as well with my family. Yeah. That's awesome, uh, Roy. Uh, Roy, what language do you speak at home? Is it Hebrew or? Uh... I do speak Hebrew at home, um, primarily with my wife. My children kind of half-half, I think. So I wish they I wish we spoke all Hebrew with the children, but they, they're fluent and they understand and they visit Israel every summer and there's, there's family and grandparents in Israel. So that's, that's you know, I'm, for, I'm, I'm fortunate to, to, you know, to um, have them spend this time with the family. Um, but Hebrew, yeah. I mean, Hebrew and English, I guess. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And how do you stay fit? I mean, it looks like you cycle quite a bit or? I cycle quite a bit. Not as much as I used to because um, I've got a job now. Um, <laughs> but I used to cycle a whole lot. I live in this part of California, Los Angeles, that is just magical. Um, tucked into the Santa Monica Mountains. It's all hills and valleys. And there's great uh, cycling, you know, uh, everywhere out my door. Um, both road and mountain and gravel, just incredible uh, all around. And, you know, I lift some weights, but, you know, it's important for me to stay fit. And, and I, you know, cycling's been a, been a lot of fun, and I try to go on, like, two big trips a year. I have one trip with uh, other VCs that I go on that I was invited, and it's, it's great. And then I, uh, another one that I do is for a nonprofit that I'm involved with. Uh, so I'll be in Italy this year um, in October, riding in Tuscany uh, with a nonprofit. And then um, I, do a, I do an April trip uh, as well with the VCs. And I, I don't know what uh, April's in store, but uh, wh wherever it is, I'll be there. <laughs> well, I'd like to end with this question. You read a lot and you also listen to a lot of podcasts. What book are you reading right now? What book am I reading right now? Um, there are two books that I'm reading right now. Um, I forget the names though. But one is on the relationship between U.S. and China. Mm -hmm and the risk of war between the countries. Um, I'll send you the name later. <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, so that's one. Um, I, I love geopolitics. I just, it's always been of interest. Um, and I'm fascinated by what's happening in China, um, the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis sort of our current geopolitical landscape and, and you know, and, and sort of a macro perspective on that. Um, and the other one I'm reading about a boy that escaped Auschwitz to warn the world about the horrors um, that um, have taken place there. So uh, it, it's hard um, for me, obviously being Jewish and, and having that background and, and, and you know, um, having lost a lot of my family in, uh, in the Holocaust. But uh, this book was recommended. I saw something about it on Twitter and, and uh, I started reading it recently. And it's about heroism um, and about leadership and about, you know, fear and, and, and uncertainty and, and dealing with that um, and about bravery. So I, I always like, you know, these types of books that kind of combine all of that. Yeah, I'm reading The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, yeah. uh, Robin Sharma, that's what I'm reading. Yeah. So Roy, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for making time for us. And uh, it's always a pleasure meeting you and thanks a lot. Of course. Yeah. Be good to be here. Cheers. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Driven Podcast. Check out our other episodes for more and subscribe to be the first to access every new episode.